Hello, this is Chris. Uh, thank you for watching. This is the fourth and final class in my series, Jesus and the Law in Matthew, Set Aside or Set in Stone. So what we're looking at in this concluding class is the new covenant brought in by Jesus. And we're considering whether the law, which has been our theme, still plays a part in that. The title of this class is called Renewed Heart and Renewed Covenant. So we've been considering the role of the Jewish law, the Torah, in Matthew's Gospel, and we've seen that Matthew tells his story of Jesus as a fulfillment of the story of Israel and all of its scriptures. So Jesus didn't simply fulfill forward-looking prophetic predictions, but the, even the narrative story of Israel itself pointed to a fulfillment in Jesus. And we saw last time that this included the law itself, that the law even was fulfilled in Jesus. And ultimately, this fulfillment takes the form of the new covenant, as we saw foretold by the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. So we see these two uh, passages here, the uh, first one from Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. And then in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the references um, in the Ezekiel passage to this new heart of flesh enabling the people to follow the statutes and ordinances um, of God um, could be interpreted as simply meaning that a spirit softened heart means people better able to follow the Torah properly. And this is probably what Ezekiel thought was intended when he wrote this. However, Ezekiel probably also understood the new temple to be literal. There's a lot of detail from chapter 40 to 47. It's all about the temple, um, a lot of details about the dimensions of the building, the role of the priests within it. Um, although he must have been somewhat confused by the description of a, a river flowing from the temple from nearby the altar. The fact is that if scripture pointed, as we've said, toward a fulfillment in Jesus, then it can only really be understood retrospectively in the light of that fulfillment in Jesus. And as Matthew demonstrated to us, as we saw in the second class, that fulfillment is often of a surprising nature. So the key meaning for us from this passage, looking back in the light of the fulfillment of Jesus in the new covenant, is that through the spirit, we are able to overcome the problem Jesus identified as the problem with Israel, which was that of a hard heart. So let's think about what changes this represents. So 
Under the old covenant, Israel was called to separate itself from the pagan nations. And that separation was defined firstly in a, a genetic sense that Israel were the descendants of Abraham and they could trace that descent back to him. And the symbols of their separation, their, their identity, were the temple, land, and Torah. So the Torah defined the way the covenant people lived. It's misleading to say that they thought they could earn their salvation through following the law. They were the covenant people, and this was how they were called to live in a, man, in a manner appropriate to that status as covenant people. Although we have seen that there were clearly consequences depending on their obedience or disobedience to the law. There's an African saying, where the heart leads, the feet will follow. But the reverse doesn't apply. Where the feet lead, the heart will not necessarily follow. And that was the problem for Israel, that its heart was not right. So the question, looking at the new covenant and questioning whether the law still retains a role within that new covenant is, does the spirit mean that God's people can now fulfill the law in a righteous manner and therefore live a life pleasing to God? So if we think about the passage we were looking at last time from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew in uh, Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And then in Matthew 11, verse 13, it says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until Jesus came. So here Jesus is talking about fulfilling the law, and then he's talking about the law and the prophets prophesying until John came. So John, the appearance of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus seem to mark a, a new era, a, a defining moment. And we see this as the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And so this suggests, both of these verses seem to suggest that the law is being replaced by something superior, much like Paul's um, Pythagogos imagery in Galatians, a moving to maturity. And we saw last time that the temple is under judgment, or rather the, the people of the old covenant are under judgment, and that is being reflected by the judgment on the temple. So the temple at this stage still goes on, even though it's under judgment by Jesus and the disciples still attend it. But as we saw, as a place of forgiveness, it has been replaced by Jesus. And in addition, it's been replaced as the dwelling place of God by the spirit dwelling within the people of God themselves. So does the law then still define a life pleasing to God, as Hebrew Roots advocates would suggest, could it be said that following the law equates to doing God's will? So I want to look here at the question of divorce, where the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, um, hoping to find a, a flaw in his argument. And uh, in Matthew 19, they have asked him about divorce, and Jesus responds to them, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his wife and sorry, shall leave his father and mother 
and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And they respond again. Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. This is a very significant uh, interaction in demonstrating the role of the law. What we see here is that when Jesus is describing the ideal that God wanted, he goes back to Eden and he describes what was allowed under the law as a concession hard-heartedness so the law does not represent God's will but simply a concession God meeting the people where they were at acknowledging that they had hard hearts so in the um, Sermon on the Mount the passage from Matthew 5 that we saw last week uh, and we just referred to we we saw Jesus saying that he's come to fulfill the law and then in verse 20 he says for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to demand a greater righteousness using the formula. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus' demand of a greater righteousness and scribes and Pharisees doesn't simply mean doing Torah better than they did, beating them at their own game. Uh, we see in the Beatitudes and the antitheses that follow that Jesus outlines what this greater righteousness will look like and so we see Jesus saying the law demands do not murder Jesus demands do not hate do not commit adultery Jesus says do not even lust the law says love your neighbor Jesus says love your enemy and although the this mustn't be overstated the the law advocates doing good and we see examples of this in the way that uh, David showed mercy to Saul, Joseph forgave his brothers who had sold him into slavery, but Jesus calls us not simply to do good but to actually love our enemies and this can only be done if with the heart engaged, not simply through gritted teeth, sense of duty or obligation, but the heart itself must be engaged. Jesus goes on in the uh, sermon in chapter 5 uh, verse 48 to say be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect so this is a new standard that sounds um, pretty scary the word perfect here is uh, teleos and should probably be understood um, although God is morally perfect not here is that's not what's being conveyed but rather uh, a maturity so the law was a concession to hard-heartedness. If Jesus is now calling for a high standard, then that concession no longer applies. So the law cannot be said to define righteousness. So then, what does the fulfilled law look like? So Matthew 12, uh, verse 50, it says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and a mother. And here we see Jesus redefining Israel, the covenant people, as his family. They are the people who do God's will. And then in the passage we looked at last time in, uh, in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, it says, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evil doers. So these people who claim to have done things in Jesus' name, Jesus doesn't deny their actions. He simply says, I never knew you. And it's important here to um, consider the Jewish application of knew. We think of the phrase, Adam knew his wife. Knowing isn't simply intellectual. It's about experience. It's about intimacy. And here we're seeing that doing the will of God and being known by Jesus appear to both be requirements of entry into the kingdom of heaven. So again, we're seeing a definition of who the new covenant people are. Although Hebrew roots advocates would say doing God's will involves following Torah, we've already seen that Jesus demands a greater righteousness than doing that. So as Glenn Giles um, observes in a, a paper I was kindly sent by James Thomas on Matthew, the phrase enter the kingdom of heaven appears to bookend the Sermon on the Mount. So in a passage we've already looked at in 520, Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we have this passage we just looked at, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That suggests that we will find within those two bookends uh, an indication of what it does take to enter the kingdom of heaven. And likewise, we also find the phrase, the law and the prophets, bookending the Sermon on Mount. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then in 7.12, in everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. So again, we would expect to find an indication of what happens to the law and the prophets, how they're fulfilled in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on Mount and indicating their place within the new covenant. And we've already seen that uh, Jesus has called us to love our enemies. We see that the root of doing God's will, of obeying Jesus' teaching, something to do with love and the heart. So, as we've seen in, in Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus calls us to a godlike perfection. And uh, I want to look at a passage in 1 John. This is primarily uh, a discussion about Matthew, but I want to look at this passage in 1 John because it sheds some light on this issue of the call to perfection and knowing Jesus. But it's also a key passage used by Hebrew roots advocates to demand our continued observance of Torah. And that's because the, the closing line says, whoever says I abide in him, that's Jesus, ought to walk just as he walked. And so the argument is, if we are to walk just as Jesus walked, then like him, we must obey Torah, because clearly Jesus obeyed Torah. But the interesting thing is, if we go back a couple of words, we see that this is clearly talking about obeying Jesus' teaching. Let's just read it from verses 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. Now by this we must be sure that we know him, if we obey his commandments. 
whoever says I have come to know him but does not obey his commandments is a liar and in such a person the truth does not exist but whoever obeys his word truly in this person the love of God has reached perfection by this we may be sure that we are in him whoever says I abide in him ought to walk just as he walked so John says if we obey Jesus word God's love has reached perfection or maturity in us and we've already seen Jesus sum up the law and prophets as treating others as you would like them to treat you so God's will doing God's will is based on loving in this selfless manner with regard to others so let's think about walking as Jesus walked so obedience we see in these references to obeying Jesus command obedience now switches from the law obedience to the law to Jesus obeying Jesus commands and we see in Matthew 12 verse 6 to 8 Jesus saying I tell you something greater than the temple is here but if you had known what this means I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is lord of the sabbath so again we see here that obedience now relates to Jesus as lord and his teaching rather than the law and here Jesus is saying I am greater than the temple and I am the lord of the sabbath in other words what is allowable what is good to do on the sabbath is now determined by jesus not by the law obedience means walking like jesus did in the uh, way that he lived his life in the way he was selfless and the way he loved so we must look to the example of jesus if we are to understand the obedience that god now demands from us so matthew 22 verses 34 to 40 it says when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We have to remember here, Jesus is summing up the law here as love of God and love of neighbor. This is uh, how the law and the prophets can be summed up. And we remember that Jesus has already said that he's come to fulfill the law. We expect it to be something to do with that. And additionally, we remember that Jesus has already quoted this passage from Isaiah. Because these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Hard heartedness had stopped Israel obeying this command and we have to remember what we saw in the first class that the restoration of Israel from its state of enduring exile spiritual exile was conditional it says when all these things have happened to you i.e exile the blessings and curses that I've set before you if you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord of God has driven you and return to the Lord your God and you and your children obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, just as I am commanding you today. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you again from all the peoples among whom the Lord your God has scattered you. So we know that this passage that Israel was unable to fulfill and thus remained in exile, that this is achieved by Jesus. So if we want to know what obeying him with all your heart and with all your soul looks like, we simply have to look at the example of Jesus. And this was the, the issue that um, faced 
Israel, when they, they knew this passage, they knew this condition, they, they tried to work out how do we demonstrate to God that we are now devoted in the manner he requires. And for the Pharisees, the answer was to enforce uh, a stricter application of Torah and try to uh, make everybody else live like they did. For the Zealots, it was about demonstrating their faithfulness to God by stepping out on a limb, by putting their bodies on the line through violent resistance, urging God to then come and support them. For the Essenes, it was it was pretty much giving up on the rest of Israel and the, the temple system and separating themselves and awaiting redemption in the desert. But what we see in the example of Jesus that this obedience of heart and soul is about complete trusting God, submitting to God as loving father and thereby not worrying. However, uh, counterintuitive it may seem to trust God's way is the right way. And this requires humility, not trusting in our own wisdom, but trusting in God. And above all, it requires selfless love. It's putting the uh, needs of others ahead of ourselves. So one other thing I want to show, which I think shows this um, picture we've seen that, that Matthew has presented um, of Jesus living a, a parallel to the story of Israel, but succeeding where Israel failed. When Moses gave the law, he said that God would raise up a prophet in Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 and 16. Let's just read that. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. This is what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. So God here is talking about raising up a prophet, and it may well be that this was simply intended to refer to any prophet raised up by God. It was just a warning that when prophets appear, you must heed their words and obey them. However, this figure in Jewish tradition became known as the prophet. So they, they anticipated a Moses-like figure who would um, be known as the prophet. And uh, Matthew doesn't explicitly identify Jesus as this, um, the prophet, but John seems to in his gospel where John the Baptist is asked, are you the prophet? And he denies it, which only leaves one candidate left, Jesus. Um, whilst Matthew doesn't explicitly make this link, we have seen how Matthew presents Jesus as, in effect, rerunning Israel's history. And there does seem to be a parallel here. So if this prophet was to be like Moses, could it be said that Jesus was a prophet like Moses? So what was Moses like? Well, he led his people from slavery and he was a lawgiver. And we've already seen that in parallel to the Sinai law giving by Moses, we have the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. But I think is really interesting is that in this same passage, um, we get in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, we get the word ecclesia. So it says, let's look at it again. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. This is what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the day of the assembly is the day of the ecclesia. So we have this parallel of the Sinai law giving and the Sermon on the Mount. And then we have this prophet, Moses, 
calling the people together to receive the law in, a, in an assembly, in ecclesia. And then let's go back to that passage we've seen that talked about the restoration of Israel. It said, return to the Lord your God and you and your children obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, just as I am commanding you today. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you again. So ecclesia means gathering or assembly. So again, we see this parallel from the same passage, this new gathering, this restoration of Israel. The condition has been applied by Jesus, the condition of obeying him with all your heart and soul, as Jesus demonstrated in his life and obedience to the cross. And then that facilitates the restoration, this regathering of Israel in the ecclesia of Jesus. Jesus talks about the ecclesia in, uh, in Matthew 16. Obviously, he didn't use that word. That's Matthew's word when he writes it in, in Greek. But as I said, the usage of the Old Testament scriptures, the Septuagint, enables these word plays where we see the paralleling of the original ecclesia in the time of Moses and now the new ecclesia in the time of Jesus. So we have a new law and a new gathering in the ecclesia. So in conclusion then, this is um, a huge, huge subject and in many ways we've only really touched upon it. But what we've seen is that in this new covenant, Jesus is the key. The new covenant is defined by and in Jesus. He is now the authority. Obedience is to Jesus' commands, not to Torah. Doing God's will means being known by Jesus, being in a relationship with Jesus. And walking as Jesus means loving in the selfless manner of Jesus, even to the extent that it took him to the cross. So although we've only uh, touched the surface in many ways, I hope this has helped you as studying this has helped me to see the big picture in a way I haven't seen before um, about how the relationship between God and his covenant people has changed through Jesus. I want us to realize that um, a common argument used by Hebrew roots advocates is the implication that if you reject Torah observance, then you're being anti-Semitic. It's an emotional blackmail type of argument. Um, but what we have seen is that though is that Jesus didn't reject the law, rather he fulfilled what the law had always intended to happen. That with the coming of the spirit enabled by Jesus' obedience to God and his love, that we as the ecclesia in Jesus are able to be the people God always intended us to be. Once again, thank you very much for uh, watching. I hope you've enjoyed it.